On Pop Fiction Women, we explore what it means to be a complicated woman. Tired of endless variations of leading men next to one-dimensional archetypes of women or strong female leads written by men that were essentially guys in women's bodies? We started this show to highlight the many female characters in entertainment worth exploring, as well as the women who dreamt them up. And now we're adding those creators to our conversations, discussing their process and passion in bringing these women to life. Welcome to Complicated Conversations. Sarah Gamble is a television writer and producer best known for her work on the Netflix series You, the sci-fi series The Magicians, and the CW series Supernatural. Welcome to Pop Fiction Women, Sarah. Thank you. Congratulations on all of your success, obviously, but specifically we're talking about you. Netflix recently released viewership data, and the first 28 days people watched 457 million hours of you season two and that puts you wow. at the very top <laughs> of Netflix most watched shows how does that feel that is not something my mind can actually wrap around that is so crazy I mean it's it's exciting when you work for a wonderful streamer like Netflix you don't know if they're going to share those numbers they have to be significant to even be mentioned yeah it gave me a little thrill none of us are doing this just so only our moms will see we like it when our moms watch but we want other people to watch too well if it's anything like our podcast our moms are actually the least likely to listen to ours so that's a okay. separate issue <laughs> yeah you know but so we've heard you describe you as dexter meets 500 days of summer which is not only accurate but really fantastic description. What did you see in the novel by Caroline Kepnes that told you this would make a great TV show? I actually felt that on page one of the novel, which closely resembles the first scene in the first episode where he's sort of checking out what she's wearing. He's checking out her, is she wearing a bra Mm -hmm. under her sweater, all of that. And I was like, I've never quite experienced being inside somebody's honest thoughts like this. And ricocheting back and forth between being charmed by it and also worried that he's crossing a line and I was hooked really within a couple paragraphs I was like well I'm definitely not putting this book down yeah and was it the tone because it is so such a strong voice such a strong tone set right from the first page and that just grabbed you yeah it's Caroline's special Mm. genius I think Mm. and Greg Berlanti you know low-key changed my entire life when he sent me this book but he was just like I find it so bingeable even in novel form let me know if you agree so that was certainly the first topic of conversation but I also very quickly realized that because he is following this young woman and observing her so closely it could be an opportunity to very closely and honestly observe like a 24 year old woman on tv and not have to have her be perfect or be all bad or be like also defending somebody on death row as an excuse to just be like this is what it's like to be 24 and trying to start your life and that seemed irresistible to me yes yeah well in the old school I feel like and old school probably wasn't even that long ago the authors of novels were really separate from any process having to do with their adaptation they were either considered they didn't know what production needed or what things would cost and or they were too attached to their own work that they could not imagine it in another way but you break that wall and and talk to Caroline picking her brain and 
and really having her be a, a discussion partner in your adaptation. Oh, for sure. She has been a TV writer as well, so she understands the medium. And I think it's actually different just completely case by case. Mm. So many books are optioned by, we'll just say Hollywood, every year. And so I think if I were a full-time novelist and I wasn't interested in the TV side for my own mental health, I wouldn't pay very close attention because it's, here's the like inside baseball, like the real answer. It's people whose books are real, very important bestsellers who have a good deal of power, like on the level of like a JK Rowling, who kind of get to put it in their contract that they get a certain type of say. Most writers fall somewhere in the middle where they, they consult meaningfully on the show. And then it's up to the creator and the author to just sort of figure out what is that going to mean and how is our it's a relationship like how is our relationship going to work so that you feel like we're protecting what's important Mm -hmm. and then we feel like we can like make make it it tv yeah make our own show yeah yeah Yeah. so i want to i want to talk about love and by love i mean love quinn um (laughs) on this podcast our focus is on complicated women which to us just means real three-dimensional human beings with contradictions Mm -hmm. and conflict who, you know, don't always make the best choices, but who we relate to nonetheless. And you have certainly delivered with love. She is a devoted sister, a loyal friend. She's a generous girlfriend. And apropos of her name, she says in the finale of season two, my whole life I've been doing what it takes when I love someone. What it takes, though, is murder. (laughs) <laughs> and yet somehow you you have us rooting for us or at the very least we just we understand her which to me is the ultimate goal so i'd love to hear about your development of love and how you infuse such relatability to a person who in the end is doing some pretty horrible things the fact that she's so extreme and she's objectively a violent criminal actually frees us up mm. quite a bit The premise of our series, the same is true for Joe, really. The premise of our series lies so much over at the extreme where if you're turning it on, you've already accepted, I'm going to sit down and watch a couple people who are murderers. It's not really part of like the writer's job to then be like, but they're a really good person. No, they're not. They're murdering people. So among other things, that clears the way for us to just be really honest in a way that I think every writer and certainly Victoria, the directors, like we all want to be this honest when we're portraying three-dimensional people of any gender. And frankly, sometimes you need a bit of a loophole to do that. I think all of us have very ingrained worries and fears and concerns about how we portray women in TV that I think are outdated and frankly, totally wrong. I just put it that way because I have a lot of empathy for all of the people who give notes that Mm. have the word likability in them. It's not that they're terrible people who hate women. It's that we're we're just behind we're just we're just not portraying reality mostly i think in tv and movies when we portray women it's really limited but hey you say she started killing people when she was 14 and then you've kind of opened up a door where she can also talk about how she really feels being a mother and being a girlfriend what i found really surprising was when joe finds out about her past and what she's done he freaks out like he And now Mm -hmm. that's what maybe any normal human being, how they would react. But Joe, I feel like part of that was the double standard, like really being in your face. The way that likability is so much more of a hurdle for women than it is for men. And for some reason, he can get over it in himself. But when it comes to her, he has to think about it. He has to justify it. And these are all things Mm -hmm. kind of he's done 
himself. And was that the only option for Joe? There was no point in the writer's room where you're like, hey, let's make him say, let's take over the world, or I love that you do this, or anything. Because I, I, I think it was the perfect, surprising, but obvious response. Yeah, I mean, for Joe in particular, he has a lot of, he is able to get through the day because he's in denial about those parts of himself. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so when he's faced with somebody who's so similar and doing similar things, it's like system overload. Yeah. Just yeah. to try to, he can't embrace her excuse for doing it without really looking at his own. That whole thing is pretty radioactive for him. But, you know, you'll see when the new season comes out that we weren't, we were interested in all of it. We were interested in the version of them where they're incompatible and where they're perfectly mm. compatible. You know, the, ra- the way the writer's room talked about it, they were like, we want Mr. and Mrs. Smith and we want Bonnie and Clyde. We want... We want to see them together and we want to see them fighting. And so we just slowed way down and kind of sat back and we were like, okay, so let's just put this all under the headline of marriage. Right. And if you're married or just in any kind of serious relationship that's committed in that way, I think you know that some days you wake up friends and some days you wake up maybe slightly nemeses, (laughs) just with an understanding. (laughs) So that's where we were coming from with with that. Yeah. Oh, I love that. I love that. And Kate, that's perfect. Yeah, this leads perfectly to my... My favorite question, no, or my favorite theme, like we talk on the podcast a lot about this idea of being seen, and I mm. always say with a capital S, and in the finale of season two, Joe says, because while I was seeing you really see, I'm it sorry, love, love says yeah. to Joe, yes, of course, because while I was seeing you, really seeing you, you were busy gazing at a goddamn fantasy, a perfectly imperfect girl. You saw what you wanted to see, but I was always right there the whole time. It wasn't that hard. You just had to look. And it points, you know, both Joe and Love think they're the ones seeing clearly, yet they're (laughs) also trying to live out their own personal fantasies. And and earlier she had said to him, we're all a little broken and some pieces still manage to fit together. And so as we head into season three, and you're touching on a little bit in your last answer, you know, we can't help but wonder, are these two like a match made in heaven or just a complete (laughs) ticking time bomb or both? And but like, like you're saying, or maybe they can be Bonnie and Clyde and Mr. and Mrs. Smith. Yeah, they're, I think of them as both. I mean, uh, like, I think, I think we want Joe to be able to keep being Joe. So there's still a show. I mean, we the audience, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And so we're like, mm-hmm. oh God, love could really get in the way. But also I'm really, I really enjoy love. And honestly, never more than when she's at her quote unquote craziest. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Which, yeah. by the way, I also think of as her most honest. So, yeah, we want, like, all the flavor. We're the, I think the new season of the show is the equivalent of walking into, like, an ice cream parlor and being like, I would like a scoop of everything. <laughs> I want to oh, taste nice. it all. I love that. Yes. Yeah. I, Are you as, as obsessed as me and, and Corinne with this idea of being seen? Or was that just, like, when, when that line came out, I was like, oh, oh loved it, yes. loved it. Yes, I think it's the thing that we long for romantically. And Mm -hmm. it's certainly the thing I have. I mean, that's actually, like, personally. Like, I remember having a conversation when I was 
single and had been single for a little bit with a friend who he actually said it to me that way where he was like someone will come who sees you Mm -hmm. right Mm -hmm. and I held on to that for a long time because it felt like what I wanted but the thing that happens when you get that is that the person sees you yeah and you realize (laughs) that oh shit yeah yes and that is not comfortable because, listen, when those first few dates where you don't know each other very well, where I think it's Chris Rock who says you're dating each other's representative. Yeah. Yes. Um, yes. That's fun. Like, my representative is awesome. She's a very cool girl. <laughs> Here, she's witty. She's incredibly confident. She's never insecure. And and then if you really see me, that's – I mean, as there's this more. is sort of what we're talking about with Joe and Love. Yeah, there's more. It's vulnerable. And there are things about myself that are in drawers that I have closed, that if you're seeing the real me and you're asking any kind of questions, we have to open those drawers and that's uncomfortable. So I think that's the real work of being in a partnership is that you're walking closer and closer together to to just enact that with one another and figure out just like, how do I love someone who for for who and what they actually are as they stand before me right at this moment? Which is, by the way, in a nutshell, what Joe has not thought about at yeah. all when he has been longing for true love. Because I, I, what we always say is that this season he has gotten everything he always wanted, which is a problem. Yes, <laughs> you know, yeah. But he hasn't he hasn't really thought about like love. Love is very forgiving much more forgiving of his worst parts than he is. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. I'm so glad you're going down this road because I mean, we, I I certainly have imputed a lot of love in this horror show where people are killing each other. I really thought that Joe and love learned, I don't know, Joe specifically really learned to love this season. And I think he loves Mm -hmm. love. They haven't quite figured out trust yet. I think that's maybe, Mm -hmm. you know, like he's still trying to control everything. He's still trying to like make it unfold the way, okay, I got it now. Like I, I know now what we should do and how this needs to go forward. And, and I think that is a common response in adults who were abused or abandoned as children. Love says it herself, right? We had to learn to survive at a really young age. Are we going to Mm -hmm. see any trust come out of these two in season three? (laughs) And how quickly will it be diminished? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> We're going to see them try. They're going to try. You know, it's it's interesting that you said that you saw Joe really, really loving and learning how to do that. Nothing will crack a person open like having a baby. Oh, yeah. That's yeah. when, oh, anything about, especially about your early life. Yes. Like, oh, boy. Suddenly, I've, we, we had hours and hours of conversation in the writer's room. Because I'm saying this with so much authority, but I don't have actual yeah. children. Well, we do. So <laughs> I have agree. You do, and you're right. And it's not as much as I love my dog. It's just not the same in terms of like, you, but this is what everybody universally says to me. I look at my child, and I suddenly see my relationship with my parents. Like, I understand what that was, because now this person is standing before me the same size and shape and age that I was while this was happening. And so yeah. uh, Joe and Love both have a lot of that this coming season because there's a baby in the mix yes yeah it adds a whole nother element of emotions so you know we call you like a trojan horse of shows it purports to be horror there's plenty of blood and gore and slashing throats but there's also just like existential dilemmas and literary wisdom season two we've got joe reread of crime and punishment and 
thinking things like if a man has a conscience, he will suffer for his mistake. That will be his punishment as well as his prison. So, you know, I want to hear more about sort of your interest in subverting genre expectations, Mm -hmm. how you do it and and sort of strike the right balance because you're you're doing it. But you have to stay Mm -hmm. true to the genre too, right? You have to give them the the murder and (laughs) true part of it, but then also really focus on this relationship. I think that part of the reason we frequently get props for having all of the, I'll just say the smart stuff yeah. that you just said, <laughs> it, yeah. in something that is those genres is because I think culturally we consistently misunderstand those genres and we put them in a category that starts out less smart than like whatever category like Mad Men and The Sopranos is in. I I love those shows, by the way. It's just that we have this idea in our head that horror and thrillers and, by the way, anything with like mostly women in it is somehow a a little less. It's not the default. And, um, well, frankly, that's just bullshit. And like incredibly smart stuff that hits at a lot about human nature has always been made in these genres, which is why like you go to a place like Comic-Con and it's like it's a lot of people who feel really happy and free with their choices because they know it's like a big club of people who are like, oh, we know why it's cool. It's so sad that other people are missing out. So so thank you for yes. saying that about it. But I don't actually think we're, that this show is that special. My whole life, I have been such a fan of especially horror movies movies that are made for like about a quarter and they don't hide the fact that they're obsessed with splashing blood at the camera and coming up with cool monsters and embrace both at the same time also have something really profound to say about people no it's true but I don't know it does feel more subversive it does feel a little deeper on this there are themes of freedom and standing up for yourself that are common to any kind of horror genre but I don't know. This one really gets into to the deep love stuff and, and the way it affects you mm. and, and that, I, that I really love. So in season three, Joe and Quinn move to Madre Linda, which translates mm-hmm. to beautiful mother. I assume that was <laughs> intentional, but either way, mothers loom large on this show. Joe was damaged by his mother and her issues love's mother Dottie so far cannot get it together to help love heal in any way and before 40 was shot he said that love was crazy for thinking she would be a good mother was not a theme I saw coming in season one but it was strong in season two what are we going to see in season three are we going to get more mom mommy issues we love mommy issues just so you know (laughs) it's our favorite (laughs) by the way my mom does watch the show, so I'm probably going to hear from her when it comes out. But Love's Mother is big in the season. We we learn more about young Joe in the season. And, and one of our guiding principles in making the show is that we really want to explore the standard we of, we'll just say like all of Western culture, mm-hmm. basically. When we sit down to watch entertainment, we are programmed to root for the like heteronormative romantic hero and we are programmed to judge the women in the story that and like a, a huge point in season one was that beck was doing things that were objectively tiny and insignificant in terms of transgressions compared to what joe was right. doing but to a person all like myself included i would watch her do something and i would judge her and then my brain would be going like but he has reasons he has reasons about Joe. So, you know, one of the reasons we're doing this show at all is just to shine a light on that and just look at it and be like, well, that's 
problematic, interesting, interesting, and push against it. And the thing that we were all very conscious of going into this season is in a world where we judge women and put them in a catch-22 situation pretty much every day of their Mm -hmm. lives, nobody nobody gets judged harsher than mothers in our culture. Mm -hmm. I mean, I wouldn't even dare go on one of those message boards where they debate breastfeeding. Like any little thing is a reason we want to tell some mother that they're doing it wrong. And it's amazing to me that women don't crack under and just start killing people all the time, (laughs) to be (laughs) frank. Why is art not imitating life? So love, love is standing there being so extreme that she gets to do what I think a lot of people want to, which is just go like, this is so, like, just call it out. There is no way for me to win, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I know one of the characters in season three is a momfluencer. Mm -hmm. Then I'm like, she's driving me crazy perfectly, though. I wrote the first episode with the Marin Reed, who is one of the writers on staff, and she has three young children. So, you know, she just would take the script and go away and it would come back and have all of these like specific criticisms of things like using a pacifier mm. that I've never heard of. But she's like, trust me, this is oh, a thing. Yes. So, oh, yes. yes. Big, thing. Big thing. Big thing. And mm-hmm. when to introduce mm-hmm. it and how long and what you can do and when to take it away. Oh, God. Mm-hmm. My kids are beyond that. But that was very painful. <laughs> very painful and very real. So I can't wait to see that. Well, setting plays an important part on the show. And you, I really loved you, season two, being in L.A. I was mentioning before we started, I am from New York, but lived in L.A. for a few years. And Mm -hmm. the the jokes and the poking fun, but also, like, the real dreams and and why people are drawn to L.A., you nailed it, obviously. So good. But season three moves to the one place we've never imagined we'd find Joe. By the way, also a place I refuse to go. (laughs) is exiled in the burbs. Now, one lens on the suburbs is that it's the place where you go when your dreams have all come true, right? You're you're married. You're going to have start a family and the white picket fence. I mean, in some ways, it is the ideal. In other, there's another lens, and I think it's it's not new, but it's been modernized. I think from the 1950s version of the other lens is it's a place where dreams go to die and desire mm-hmm. is suffocated. And at the end of episode, I could tell you which lens Corinne is. <laughs> yeah, I'm not hiding it. It's pretty clear. It. <laughs> well, listen, episode two, Joe says at the end, sometimes a man gets exactly what he wishes for, and that can be the most perfect punishment of all. Are we going to see some acceptance and redemption while Joe is in exile, or is it going to be more self-sabotage? Because that's what I see. I don't see the suburbs helping his self-sabotage <laughs> inclinations. No, he didn't move to the best place he could move to if he wanted to really fully redeem right. himself. But we're interested in both things for suburbia. First and foremost, we set it you know, in a particularly privileged area in Northern California that's sort of Silicon Valley adjacent. So it has particular douchebag flavors that come from that wellness bubble, that biohacking bubble. But what intrigued us about the suburbs is that we're always very interested in privacy in what what privacies we do and don't have in our culture. Mm. Part of what makes the suburbs safe is that they are close-knit and everybody is watching, which is a tough mm. place. It's a great place to raise the baby. It's the perfect place. That's They move there for Henry, but they are constantly doing things that they should not do and people shouldn't see. Right. So that tension is yes. really, really good. And then, by the way, by lunchtime on day one, we were all talking in the writer's room about... 
what are since since suburbia is by its nature at least that white picket fence American ideal mm-hmm. that we all think of by its nature it is very rigid and almost repressed because it is based on a notion of the nuclear family that's incredibly like classically heteronormative although now it's more inclusive sure. right there are gay couples in these neighborhoods that are married but uh very monogamous very child-centric very obsessed with treating children a certain way and raising them a certain way and what that leads to is every house on the block has a secret mm. like mm. nobody is actually the white picket right. ideal and so we we started being like so who's cheating on who who's feeding yes. sugar to their kid when the when no one's looking right yes um, and you know there's that delicious like ice storm version oh of suburbia so so that was a fun element for us to talk about yeah there really is built in tension you're right yeah. Mm-hmm. And I did, I've never lived in L.A., but I did text Corinne watching season two. And I'm just like, I, I feel like I'm in on all these jokes. But I'm like, if you've lived there, I'm like, how accurate is this? She's like, oh, it's unbelievable. By the way, I moved to L.A. Burbs. twice. Once when I was first married. And then later we, when we had two kids, we, we moved out there. But I'm only at five on my totem. So I think that's why I keep moving back to New York. I got to get the palm tree on fire and the... Pack of coyotes. That's the only. I feel like I saw a palm tree on fire just the other day. <laughs> actually, it's like, this is a tragedy because it's fire yes, season. But yes. um, fire. It's eleven months of the year. It's fire season yes. now here. But I don't know. Did Kate? Did we manage to slightly woo you into thinking LA might be cool? Because that was part of my secret goal was to make even New Yorkers kind of see why people would like living in LA. Oh, I, I definitely, I think love made some good, kind of made the case. as the Yes, yes exactly. That. The perfect bite. No, you did. Yeah. You did. You definitely did. You know, New Yorkers were so like New York or anything. <laughs> Even though we go to these other places and we're like, why? Because this is so much nicer. Or <laughs> like, says why beaches and yes. why? Right? Like, why am I holding on so yeah. tightly to this place? But you know, so this is a little bit of a strange segue or connection. What I want to talk about, but we apparently both share a love of unicorns. For yeah, so. For me, there's usually some on my desk I can just hold up. There's probably some somewhere. (laughs) Somewhere. So, well, right. So for me, it symbolizes like hopes and dreams and believing in the magic of what could be. I have like keychains with unicorns. I love the unicorns or rainbows are like my favorite emojis. And I saw your Twitter handle was a unicorn like spitting out a rainbow. And so that was Mm -hmm. my first clue. I'm like, hmm. And then... I read an article about this unicorn hoodie that you use as a tool in a, the creative process. So I wanted to have you tell our listeners about the hoodie and what unicorns sort of symbolize for you because I'm into this. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I love that we have that in common. The unicorn hoodie was – so The Magicians is a show I did for five seasons and that writer's room was unsurprisingly a really fun – sort of childlike place because we were breaking insane fantasy stories that had unicorns in them. And we had a lot of toys in the room and a lot of... It, it, rooms become a strange culture <laughs> when you're in them because you're there like nine hours a day with the same people every day. And I, one day I brought in a unicorn hoodie that I just bought on Amazon or something. And I don't remember how it started, but when the last thing a writer does before they go off to write their outline and then their episode is to stand up in front of the board with all of the little cards on it and pitch it from beginning to end 
to make sure it works from beginning to end and to ask any questions they need to ask. And that can be a really high pressure moment, especially if it's one of your first few episodes you've ever written, fairly new writer. Mm-hmm. It can be, I mean, I've watched people visibly shaking and I used to be, I was that person when I was a young writer. And so anything I can do to take some of the pressure off, I want to do. That's part of my job when I'm running the room. So I was just like, well, you have to wear the pitching hoodie to do the pitch. And so now you're standing there feeling, you know, you're getting ridiculous, the horn, you're holding a magic <laughs> wand. And suddenly it's all a little silly which I think it should be. By the end of Magicians, everybody had their own because we were all sweating into the same hoodie. So I just (laughs) bought everybody one. So that's the first part of the question. When we were in person, which sadly we haven't been for a while, but when we were in person in the U room, we had an apron and a red ladle. And that's what people would put on. That was the version. Yeah. And like, you know, in jokes happened, but we had our version. And then to answer your question about why unicorns, I think you know that when people hear you like something, it just takes on a life of its own. People just give me unicorn stuff. But it started because I'm in a very particular intersection of things as a like in my career and as an artist where I got into this job because because I'm a writer, because I'm an artist, because of what I can do with the written word. But at the same time, the reason I've come to where I am as a showrunner is because I'm a very responsible, what people might call like a workhorse almost, Mm -hmm. right? I have to show up. It's the antithesis of that, you know, like crazy beret wearing artist Mm -hmm. stereotype that just is late to, you can't do that and also be a producer. So there have definitely been times when the workload has been so huge that I can lose sight of the part where it all comes from me using my particular voice and my particular point of view and just pouring it in there for the joy of it, which is where, you know, I think art comes from. So unicorn, I used to have unicorns around to remind me to just uh, protect that part of myself and not let the job and the pressures of being a producer take away why I was doing it to begin with. And so I love it that people just give me unicorns because every time I see one, it's just reinforced. It's like a little message from the universe, you know? Yes, exactly. I love that. And that leads me to my next question, which I think I'm going to change up the order of it. The way you just described yourself sounds very much like, and I looked this up, so, so I knew, but your birthday is like the cusp of Capricorn and Aquarius. Is that right? Mm-hmm. So that is the workhorse. I have a lot of Capricorn. Yeah, I, the yeah. workhorse. Oh, this, I, this is the workhorse. Yes. And then, right. but the magical, like, art comes together. It's me being me. That's very Aquarius. So that that's very fitting. But I was going to say, if your Twitter is unicorns and rainbows, your Instagram is a lot of witches and spells and magic, which I, that <laughs> is me, that I relate to that side mm-hmm. of it. I've been told I was witchy since I was young. I come from a very long line of women who, on my mother's side, all have been purported to be witchy. or accused of being witches so (laughs) Mm -hmm. astrology for me is one of the things I have in my witchy toolbox it's not the same but it's it's one of those things that when I start to tell people about themselves like wait are you a witch I'm like no 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 this is just astrology (laughs) you know but (laughs) I what what draws you into the magic the community of the witches and the the spells and that and that whole vibe that you really have that that you're really portray there? I mean, on one level, it's that I write so much stuff that literally has magic and witches in it that I've, I, it's just 
you you end up researching a ton of whatever you're writing about. And so as far back in my career as the early days of Supernatural, I, I've had every book on, on demons, on witches, on what. So, so part of it is that's the language of storytelling for me. But also on a very fundamental level, I think we love to label and chastise women who speak at all, much less who, who stand on a little apple box and dare to speak publicly. I really relate to that archetype, that sort of witchy archetype, as someone who speaks might get judgment, might help people, like maybe is understood, maybe is misunderstood. But but the thing that resonates for me is the bravery yeah. of it, knowing that we do still live in a culture where it's, it's not necessarily going to be an easy path. It almost has to be a compulsion mm. to put yourself out mm. there. You have to feel like it's not so much about yourself. Like I don't post things entire just and it's not just about being called cute and a selfie mm. you know like i think of yeah. instagram as a way to reach people who want to hear about this stuff or want a little like a little lift of bravery themselves yeah. right so mm-hmm. i do see myself as connected to all of these other people of all genders but certainly women and like fem fem people who relate to being silenced immediately upon saying anything controversial yes. does that make sense absolutely yes, <laughs> yes. yeah, yeah. Yes. i mean i think that's what we really try to to unpack here uh, on this podcast that's that's our whole point is just to give a little bit more of a platform. We're not anti-men. It's really just that women need that little bit of platform that that men have had for mm-hmm. so long. But to, but to what you were just saying, you are a very generous writer. You have shared so many lessons in your writer Q&A. You're very honest about rejection and how it's kind of just part of the deal. I mean, I love your posts when you, when you talk about stuff like that. And in an industry that is known as like a very greedy, grabby Hollywood, you know, type. You are a real giver and a giver of information. And I know I've benefited personally, so thank you for that. Mm-hmm. But but mm-hmm. where does that impulse come from? I think it's more of the, the same of what you're saying. But, I mean, that's – it's a lot. You're really generous. You are. Well, thank you for saying that. It means a lot to me when people say that they've gotten something from it. I do think the stereotype that everybody's just in it for themselves is not totally accurate. I mean, I wouldn't be where I am in my career if I hadn't met a lot of very generous people along the way. I think there's a lot of writers who want to pay it forward when they have good fortune, Mm -hmm. who are just like about the work of writing, which I think is so... It takes so long to get good at writing and to get good at whatever form you're writing in that like, who has time for the bullshit of competition? And like you're, it's not even that you're competing against yourself, it's that you're putting in this grind of hours, thousands and thousands of hours. And and I do think that there is a ridiculous amount of gatekeeping, Mm. which is true. It's true in any lucrative job that people are gonna be like, oh my God, it's so hard. I was so special to get here and it's a secret. And I didn't know anybody when I got here. I didn't come from a family that like worked in Hollywood. And I spent a lot of time barking up the wrong trees. Mm. It isn't gonna make it any easier to write the script if I tell you a couple of things about how agents think or what it feels like to pitch in the room. So anything I can do to just democratize that part of it and just take away the idea that it's the secret little click that's helping each other but not you because 
the you in this construction, the person who is going on the internet to find writers to try and figure out what that job is, is probably exactly the person we need more of. Just in terms of their voice, they're probably somebody who is historically underrepresented in some way, or they're just not rich. They don't live in LA, whatever that is. And I get, I get really excited about being like, here's the two or three things just so you don't have to figure those out too. Now concentrate on the hard stuff. You know, right. and and also really being honest that rejection is just part of it. Like expect it at all stages, yeah. expect it in, the, you know, when you <laughs> from from all places and just roll with it because it's just part of it. It's not a matter of that you're not good. And I think you talked about I, I heard you once say you were on Project Greenlight and that wasn't <laughs> yeah. you didn't win. You didn't you know, but that was enough to keep you going for a long time like that was that was the fuel and that's that's you have to take those little bits of fuel and not look at the rejection as as part of like a a sign that you're not supposed to be doing this right yeah and I think by the way like I I'm surprised that it's so unusual for people when I just post that I've been rejected (laughs) and my poem didn't get published or like we John John McNamara and I wrote a script and we just sent it out and nobody bought it right so that just happened I also want to be clear like I know it's easier for me I get feedback positive feedback once a week when they send a big check like it's the people who don't you know and it's like so my encouragement is find ways to get those little those little tiny yeses along the way even if it's just you have a friend and you exchange work and they tell you one nice thing about it that you can hold on to for that week and then if it helps at all to know that even people who have like shiny deals and who have a show that's on the air they hear rejection every week like I I don't I should I should actually just post more of them like at a certain point I was like there's a lot I have a lot of rejections I mean I could be sharing more Yeah. (laughs) yeah I think the fact that you do it all is pretty unusual I think people bury those and they don't want to show them they don't want it's not part of a singular mm-hmm. narrative right a singular narrative exactly. is you are a successful showrunner in Hollywood period right but yeah you don't have to tell anybody any differently you don't have to show your rejections because yeah. we know you're yeah. doing well so the only person that's fooling is somebody who has the weird idea that rejection ever stops which is why it's good to put an end to that misapprehension mm-hmm. right because mm-hmm. believe me my agent doesn't think that of me <laughs> You know, he's not calling in to say, Sarah, we're still batting a thousand. Like, that's not the conversations I have with him. That's not the conversations I have with Greg Berlanti about his Mm -hmm. career or mine. And I think he's objectively one of the most successful people in the history of television. But he feels those ups and downs, too. And I think he would say that if he was, you know, talking to you in this podcast. So Mm -hmm. it's only really the people who like the girl the senior in high school who's like, what do I major in? Is there any point in me trying to pursue this thing that I love? Like, oh, but but those people, they always get it right. right. Like, no, not at all, not at all. Like, there's actually no difference yeah. between you and the person in that job. They just had a lot of grit. They had some good luck. They had some help. And then they're they, in a different they stuck place, with it. Right. And they also rolled with the rejection. Yes. Yeah. They're, they're in mm-hmm. a different... I, there's like a meme that says don't compare your hustle to somebody else's highlight reel it's not Mm -hmm. the same Mm -hmm. you're not at the same place since you called out the literary shout out last Mm -hmm. season to dostoevsky Mm -hmm. we've got Mm -hmm. some shirley jackson yes this season among other people which is fun because once um, victoria got the script she's like shirley jackson's just following me around because she did hill house and she did the shirley jackson movie and right I think people will enjoy meeting the new characters. Right, the, there's a lot. The mom influencer mm-hmm. and her yes. friends, and then yes. we'll we'll talk after that. Yes, okay, <laughs> good. Along 
the lines of you being a generous writer, you also love to talk about things that you are into. I've heard you say Fleabag. I've heard you talk about Taylor mm-hmm. Swift. And so what are you loving? All things we love. <laughs> yes. Thank oh you gosh. very much. What am I loving? Okay. I'm sure you have never heard of this show, Squid Game. That's the last thing I watched. <laughs> I okay. haven't watched it yet. We've obviously heard, but I, I haven't, haven't either. Yeah. It's genius. It's so it's so worth the hype. I'm so happy that we're all getting to know more about Korean filmmaking through that yeah. show. So that's really good. I've seen a couple of tiny little horror movies lately that I really like that came mm-hmm. out in the last couple of years. I think it's always fun to just go search for independent horror because... Those are those tend to be made on an absolute shoestring. So the creativity level has to be really, really high. And I get a lot of inspiration from watching people. It's like the stone soup kind of thing. They're both a little more free because there's less money being held over their head, but also they really have to figure it out. And so if you haven't seen like Saint Maud, that's one that's amazing or the vigil. There's just a nice little influence. And by the way, I cannot wait for the next crop now that Basically, every movie that's being made right now is being made by all people who are living through a right. pandemic. And never even mind the the ways in which it will be touched on literally. I think all of us are being changed on like a cellular level by what we're living through just as a community yeah. around the world. And that'll start to seep into the art more and more oh, and more, which yes. I'm very, I'm just fascinated to see how other people are metabolizing it right and that would be all genres i mean i think you're right that's just going to come through in all Mm -hmm. different ways whether it's overt or not people have had to change Mm -hmm. their ways of seeing so many things when you feel that the world can close down around you you have to figure out how to to adapt I, I do have to go back to astrology for one okay, second, yeah. and then yeah. I promise we can go, well, just because it's a huge side interest of ours, and and you said you have a lot of Capricorn in your chart, yeah. which means already mm-hmm. that you're one of our people because you know you your chart. You know, you, you know <laughs> your chart. So, yeah, so, like, what, talk to me just a little bit more about your, is this an interest for you? How does it, like, factor into your life? As far as the that set of tools goes, I... Mm-hmm. I have this amazing astrologer who's also a meditation teacher who lives here in LA and I talk to her once every six months and uh, it's a little kind of math in a way that somehow I have like a little bit of a block to understanding all the shapes those things make on an like I I prefer to be told yes yes. (laughs) what's about to happen than just stare at a chart and figure it out myself but yes but I but my little astrological take on things is I I like to know where people's mercury is because it's so much about how they communicate. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that's mm-hmm. like mo- only only people who are into astrology will be able to tell you that. And I assume I'm not allowed to ask in a job interview. So I wait until we're working together. But um, <laughs> well, have, so, like, yeah, I don't know. Is it is it sort of like asking their religion? Right. I don't want to pry. But if it comes up in conversation, the same way that things like the Myers-Briggs mm-hmm. thing Mm-hmm. And and maybe as much as it and my by the way mine is in Capricorn. I feel like astrology is such a wonderful way to just get people to tell you about themselves. Yes. About themselves. Um, no, you know, absolutely. like when, if you're like I'm a Leo, then I'm like, what does that mean when you're a Leo? And then you'll tell me what I need to right. know so that we can communicate well. Oh, I right? could tell you it's everywhere in my. I am a Leo Sun, Leo Moon, Leo Mercury, Leo <laughs> <Yeah>. Venus. <laughs> I could tell you what that yes. means. It's a whole <laughs> lot of Leo. Yes. But yes, I think that's great. That's why I wish people did know more. We're really obsessed mm-hmm. with Venus right now. We, we need to know where everyone's We're Venus sign is because that's yeah. how you connect. Connect with others. Yeah, mm-hmm. love, but also it's 
beyond love is you get connect like friends right? person yeah. personal relationships yeah like how you connect so but i think you're right like for your job if you were interviewing someone and were allowed to ask how they communicate mm-hmm. what their mercury sign is would be very important mine's pisces yeah, yeah. okay yeah. Which is yeah. see, I like to do so that too, creativity. where I'm like, yeah, I know what yeah. that means. Even if right, I don't, because then you can I'm look it up like, later, uh-huh, it, or <laughs> or if it's not a yeah. red flag. So every six months, you consult this person. That's smart. Yeah, yeah. That's, she yeah. helped me figure out the date for our wedding. Yeah. Oh, listen, this is amazing. I can't actually control the future, but I like to sometimes feel a little bit like I can. Thank you. Just a little. Thank you. you know? <laughs> like I just know something about what's yes, happening. and somebody yes. is. So d- give me that information. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, the stars do. Yes. So, well, thank you so much. I just I had to, I had to go back to that. Well, you season three is out on Netflix now. You have time to binge one and two if you haven't already. But I am so excited for three. So excited! Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Really appreciate it. Thank you. This has been Pop Fiction Women with Corinne and Kate. If you enjoyed the show, please tell the complicated women in your life. And the men who love them. Yes, tell them to listen. And then to follow on Spotify or review and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. And of course, share on social media. Tag us with your favorite books, TV shows, and movies starring complicated women on Facebook and Instagram at Pop Fiction Women or on Twitter at Pop underscore women. For more coverage of the women you love or to find out if you qualify as a complicated woman, Go to popfictionwomen.com and keep it complicated.